0: We're ready to go. Yeah,
1: starting roll
0: I feel now. I feel rather sad. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm going to do over the morning.
1: <laughs> you get a letdown. Yeah. Yeah. You always do after these things. Yes, you because do. Because you. You think you're going to feel great, but you'll feel yes. let down for a few yes. days. When you have time to, then you'll have to start. Uh, of course, you've got to edit. Mm-hmm. Yes. You. So
0: that's Always. that's going to be hard work. <coughs> First to get back to the books. So. <laughs> yes. So neither of us actually going to have a holiday, are we? So no way. Three days. 5 seconds. Three days. Five,
1: four, three,
2: two.
0: Would you do what? the American people yearn to hear, not because they yearn to hear
1: it, but just to tell all level and so on. And let me answer it in my own way about how do I feel about the American people? I mean, uh, uh, whether I should have resigned earlier, or what I should say to them now. Well, that forces me to rationalize now and give you a carefully prepared cropped statement I didn't expect this question frankly though so I'm not gonna give you that but I can tell you this not did I. I can tell you this I think I said it all in one of those moments that that you're not thinking sometimes you say the things that are really in your heart I had a lot of difficult meetings those last days before I resigned and and the most difficult one, and the only one where I broke into tears. It was the first time I cried since Eisenhower died. I met with all of my key supporters just a half hour before going on television. For 25 minutes, we all sat around Oval Office. Men that I'd come to Congress with. Democrats and Republicans, about half and half. Wonderful men. At the very end, after saying, well, thank you for all your support during these tough years. Thank you for the, uh, particularly for what you've done to help us end the draft, bring home the POWs, and have a chance for building a generation of peace. And thank you for your friendship And then suddenly you haven't got much more to say and half the people around the table were crying. And uh, I just, just can't stand seeing somebody else cry. And that ended it for me. And I just, well, I must say, I sort of cracked up, started to cry, pushed my chair back, and then I blurted it out and I said, I'm sorry, I just hope I haven't let you you down. Well, when I said, I just hope I haven't let you down,
2: that said it all, I had. Obstruction of justice, cover-ups, hush money payments, wiretaps, for two years from 1972 to 1974, words like these would fill the national headlines and begin to haunt Richard Nixon's presidency.
1: Throughout the long and difficult
2: period of Watergate, I have felt it was my duty to persevere. Ultimately, the Watergate scandal would topple him from power. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. But Nixon would escape without standing trial, without ever being held to account. Vice President Ford will be
1: sworn in as president
2: at that hour in this office. President Ford would pardon Nixon a month later of any crimes he may have committed, and in the years that followed, Nixon never acknowledged wrongdoing or said simply, I'm sorry. But when dad interviewed him in 1977, he coaxed emotions and admissions that nobody ever thought they'd hear from Richard Nixon.
0: But the point is that Obstruction of justice is obstruction
1: of justice. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. There was a cover up of criminal activity. My motive was not criminal. I didn't believe that we were covering any criminal activities.
2: In this episode, we're going to look at key moments, some of which have never aired, of Dad's most famous interview his 28 and three quarter hour confessional with the disgraced president, Richard Nixon. We've edited them for length and clarity and put together this hour-long finale of the Frost Tapes podcast.
1: Sometimes your loyalty went too far. My loyalty went too far for a president's loyalty to go.
2: I'm Wilfred Frost and these are the Frost Tapes. Episode 7, Frost Nixon Revisited.
0: And I think unless you say it, you're going to be haunted for the rest of your life.
2: On June 17, 1972, five men were arrested, attempting to break into the Democratic National Committee offices with the goal of tapping them at the Watergate building complex in Washington, D.C. The event that became known as Watergate would be the beginning of the end of Nixon's presidency. But Watergate was not an isolated incident. In fact, it wasn't even the first time Nixon's men had broken into and tapped phones of that same DNC office. The event was just one of many acts of sabotage aimed at Nixon's political enemies. President Nixon was desperate to make his detractors look bad, even if it meant using illegal means. The list of examples is long, including Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, as we heard last episode. But one of Nixon's first documented major steps outside of the law was known as the Houston Plan, named after staff assistant Tom Charles Houston, who'd cooked it up during Nixon's first term in office. It was part of Nixon's way to deal with all the unrest we've heard about throughout the podcast. It was essentially a glimpse of the behavior that would ultimately be revealed and bring Nixon down a few years later during Watergate. The program called on the CIA, FBI, NSA and other agencies to spy on and sabotage American dissidents. It called for illegal electronic surveillance, mail opening and burglaries, also known as black bag jobs. The Houston plan was so radical that FBI director J. Edgar Hoover, who was also sending special agents to spy on Dad's talk show, refused to approve it. But in the White House, the spirit of the Houston plan would live on.
1: The plan was tough too, in many respects. It wasn't, how are you going to stop bombers? Uh, how are you going to uh, break codes? Uh, how are you going to stop espionage, uh, leaks, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, how are you going to deal with subversives? These are all very difficult matters. And no plan. The Houston plan, which provided for what you call surreptitious entry, which means going in. Burglars. And uh, yes, well, burglary is the word. but. Uh, Another way to put it is that uh, an in- you, you break into uh, an individual's office, and you take out the papers or you photograph the papers, and you get the information that you need in order to convict that person, or to get information that may avoid uh, some but, sort of uh, illegal action in the future. Yeah. But, but,
0: I mean, that action, as Houston warned, is illegal. Now, when you were concerned about street crime and so on, you went to Congress and got laws passed. Wouldn't it have been better here, though, to have done what you were going to do legally rather than doing something that was illegal? Basically,
1: the, the proposition you've just stated, in theory, is perfect. In practice, it just won't work. Now, in this case, uh, to get legislation to have warrantless uh, uh, entries uh, for the purpose of obtaining information uh, would not only have raised an outcry, but it would have made it terribly difficult to move in on these organizations because basically uh, they would be put on notice by the very fact that the legislation was on the books that they'd uh, be potential targets. Some actions that have to be covert. Uh, or in this case, uh, illegal. That's right. Well, let me say that... It is legal, in in, in my view. Was it legal for Lincoln to uh, deny uh, the right of habeas corpus in the Civil War? Was it legal, for example, to take tens of thousands of loyal American-born Japanese and keep them in a camp out here in California during World War II? Was that legal? Was it right? In retrospect, no. But on the other hand, a president makes an order. If you have 3,000 bombings and 35,000 policemen being injured a year, you got to do something about it. The question is maintaining the proper balance. What you do in these instances uh, cannot always be public. It should be covert. The Congress should be informed on a very confidential basis and a limited basis,
0: but it should be covert. So what, in a sense, you're saying is that there are certain situations, and the Houston plan or that part of it was one of them, where the president can decide that it's in the best interest of the nation or something and do something illegal.
1: Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. By definition. Exactly. Exactly.
2: Decades later, Dad would reflect on how important this moment in the interview was. As he said those words, I mean, I just thought those words are going to resound from these
0: interviews. And of course, that's true. I mean, the the thing I thought when he said it was that I must say something to try and get him to carry on that this is gold, this is pure gold. So you try and look unsurprised by this remark. You know,
2: you don't go, yes, you know, you've said it. You're trying to continue the golden trail a little bit longer. And it's a good thing Dad continued to go down that golden trail because what followed Nixon's famous quote were admissions that have been in many ways overlooked but are just as, if not more, damning.
1: If, for example, the president uh, approves something, approves an action, uh, then the president's decision in that instance uh, is one uh, that enables those who carry it out to carry it out without violating a law. Otherwise, uh, they're in an impossible position.
0: So that the black bag jobs that were authorized in the Houston plan, if they'd gone ahead, um, would have been made legal by your your action.
1: Burglaries, per se, are illegal. Let's begin with that proposition. Second, when a burglary uh, is one that is undertaken because of an express policy decided by the president uh, in the interest of the national security or in the interests of domestic tranquility, when it is undertaken then, then that means that what would otherwise be technically illegal does not subject those who engage in such activity to criminal prosecution. That's the way I would put it. Where do we draw the line?
0: If you're saying that uh, presidential fiat can, in fact, Mm -hmm. mean that someone who does one of these black-bag jobs, these burglaries, is not liable to criminal prosecution, why shouldn't the same presidential power apply to somebody who the president feels in the national interest should murder a dissenter? What's the dividing line between the burglar not being liable to criminal prosecution and the murderer?
1: Because uh, there are nuances. Uh, which are difficult to explain, but which are there. Each case has to be considered on its merits. And what I am saying here, considering the situation we were faced with at the time, it was wartime at home and virtually revolution in some areas of the country, uh, under those circumstances, I think this was the least that a president could have done and the most that he probably could have done. But the point is, just the dividing line
0: um, is that, in fact, the dividing line is the president's judgment.
1: Yes, and uh, the dividing line, and uh, just so that one does not get the impression uh, that a president can run amok uh, in this country and get away with it, uh, we have to have in mind that, uh, that a president has to come up before the electorate. We also have to have in mind uh, that a president has to get appropriations from the Congress. I
0: don't think that it was ever intended, was it, that the uh, Houston plan and the black bag robbery should be revealed to the electorate, or really discussed with Congress? No, these were not. That's correct. That's correct. In fact, uh, is there any single case at all of where any former president has personally approved black bag jobs?
1: I can't speak for any of them. None have ever indicated to me that they have. If they were intelligent people, they had to know that embassies uh, had been targets for black bag jobs. But uh, because, non- gen- because Edgar Hoover used to talk freely about uh, having uh, information directly from an embassy. He, he didn't get it by uh, attending the cocktail party either. But I
0: don't think any former president has uh, personally approved black bag jobs for
1: places other than embassies, certainly, has he? He may not have approved those, and he may not have known about them. I'm only suggesting that uh, if he was perceptive, he could have known. Uh, I didn't approve them, of course, Uh, and and I think in in this instance, uh, however, the Houston plan uh, was basically a better approach. It did formalize it. Uh, I think requiring presidential approval was a good idea. Uh, I'd much rather have the president know about everything and be a restraining force rather than being kept in the dark on it.
0: Because it may be illegal, but at least it makes it tidier. Yes.
1: You've talked only about black bag jobs, which, of course, is far more interesting for our audience because you see that kind of thing on television and the rest. But some of this cryptographic overhearing that they do the NSA, I mean, they, they can monitor your conversations. And whenever you and I talk, when you're in London incident, I mean, be
2: sure to remember, we're on the air. Right. <laughs> yes. Despite the ongoing Watergate scandal, Richard Nixon was re-elected in a landslide in 1972. By that point, The David Frost Show had been cancelled.
0: Welcome back. Welcome back to these particular festivities for the last time, in fact, and uh, the end of 750 shows, then it...
2: Dad hadn't performed regularly in the US since, but when Nixon resigned two years later, in 1974, Dad knew an interview with him could be his chance to reboot his TV career in the US. Dad had interviewed Nixon before, back in 1968, when the president was just a candidate.
0: Is there any episode you'd like to rewrite?
2: Well, I
1: suppose the answer which first comes to mind is the campaign of 1960. Uh, Should I or should
2: not... But an interview with him now would be a totally different prospect. He was clearly the most interesting and in some ways mysterious
0: uh, figure to interview in the world at that particular moment. I mean, the uniqueness of having to leave office, but the, the drama that went with it, I mean, to unearth that story, I mean, was was just irresistible. And the fact that people said they thought it was impossible to do that made it even more irresistible.
2: And dad was determined over the next three years. He worked tirelessly to get Nixon to agree to an interview, and eventually he did. After Nixon signed on, dad tried to get one of America's major networks to buy and broadcast the interview. All of them, however, declined. So Dad had to sell the show to as many local TV stations as he could, essentially building his own temporary network.
0: The thought that there are only three men who can put serious news on American television, unless you erect your own network, maybe is not the diversity of broadcasting that we would like to see in America.
2: He'd have to cover the cost of production, distribution and Nixon's $600,000 fee himself. The total cost was more than $2 million, or close to $9 million inflation-adjusted today, something he would not have achieved without the support of friends like Herb Siegel and Jimmy Goldsmith. But Dad also needed advertising money. By this time, news of the upcoming interview was public and anticipation was growing. While preparing for the interviews, Dad spent every second of his free time trying to sell commercials. But traditional advertisers refused to bite. Here's David McCall, an ad agent who represented clients like Exxon and JCPenney, talking to 60 Minutes.
1: In the opinion of our people, it's a bad media buy. It it was priced very high when we were first told about it. We don't see the ratings for it that they were predicting.
2: Dad ended up partnering with brands that, to put it lightly, weren't so well known. Here he is, getting grilled by a very sceptical Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes, shortly before the interviews began.
0: At this point, we're, we've sold half the time, and well, I, I... Wait, Weed Eater. I don't know what Weed Eater is, but they have bought one spot, two spots. Weed Eater is a product that, uh you're going to come and know and love and understand let's be clear about this we are seeking here advertisers who realize this is history but it's controversial history so we are seeking advertisers with courage and these people have courage but we are the weed eater has courage weed eater has courage
2: (laughs) weed eater has courage dad was being loyal to his main sponsor there albeit there's an enormous grin on his face to say the least, Mike Wallace and the rest of the American media establishment weren't sure that Dad was ever going to pull this off.
1: If you feel that he is stonewalling, or from what you've learned in your research, lying, what do you do? I shall say so,
0: again and again and again. I must say that I shouldn't give the impression before getting to the session that I am implying that I think he will be lying because I don't think that the stonewall approach will be the one he'll take. I hope the approach he'll take will be the one of a cascade of candor. A cascade of candor from Richard Nixon? Is this what you expect? No, it was just a phrase that I thought would appeal to you. Approximately 30 seconds. President,
1: what's your-
2: After seven days of questions on all manner of topics, such as foreign policy, including China and Vietnam, and the exchange we just heard about the Houston plan, the eighth and ninth days of filming were contractually dedicated to Watergate. Uh, 10
1: seconds. He's trying to make me look good.
0: Five, four, three, three, two. Good morning. (laughs) That's again, not for, that good morning is not for immortalization.
2: Dad and his team had been planning for months, and by this point knew the Watergate scandal in and out.
0: Mr. President, to try and review your account of Watergate uh, in one programme is a daunting task, but uh, we'll press first of all through the sort of factual record and the sequence of events as,
2: as concisely as we can. Watergate is a daunting task to review. We'll spare you as many details as we can but let's start with the break-in itself. The question, which I think could well have been the first appropriate question, as to whether
1: I authorized the break-in, knew about it uh, in advance, uh, or had any reason to know about it in advance. No, now, the answer, the answer there is that I did not. I knew nothing whatever about it.
2: Of course, he didn't have to authorize the Watergate break-in specifically, as we learned earlier under the Houston plan, Nixon's men were already carrying out break-ins, espionage and other dirty tricks to stay ahead of his opponents. But the questions that Dad dug into, the questions that ultimately unraveled the Nixon presidency, were about what happened after the break-in. When did Nixon know about it? What did Nixon do when he found out? Why did he spend months denying all of it to the American people? The way all of that came to light started with leaked White House audio tapes, tapes that revealed Bob Haldeman, Nixon's chief of staff, telling Nixon six days after the break-in that the FBI was on the cusp of discovering that the burglars had ties to the White House.
1: On the investigation, you know, the Democratic break-in thing, we're back uh, in the, the problem area because the FBI is not under control, their investigation is now leading into some productive areas.
2: Haldeman came up with a scheme to shake the FBI off the trail. On tape, Haldeman suggests to Nixon that they should reach out to the CIA Deputy Director Vernon Walters and ask him to lie to the FBI that the break-in had been a CIA operation. Nixon agreed to the plan. He ordered Haldeman to, quote, call the FBI and say, don't go any further into this case, period. In other words, the two men had concocted a cover-up. On the first day of the Watergate interviews, Dad went after Nixon like a prosecutor.
0: So you invented the CIA thing on
1: that day as a cover?
2: No. Let's use the word cover-up, though, in
1: the sense that it should be used and should not be used. If a cover-up is for the purpose of covering up criminal activities, it is illegal. If, however, a cover-up, as you have called it, is for a motive that is not criminal, that is something else again. And my motive was not criminal. I didn't believe that we were covering any criminal activities. From the time I learned of the break-in, Uh, Until March, when I learned of some of the criminal aspects or potential criminal liabilities of members of my staff and others, I was trying to contain it politically. And that's a very different motive from the motive of attempting to cover up criminal activities of an individual. And so there was no cover-up of any criminal activities. That was not my motive.
0: But surely in all you've just said, you have proved exactly that that was the case, that there was a cover-up of criminal activity, because you've already said, and the record shows, that you knew uh, that Hunt and Liddy were involved. You'd been told that Hunt and Liddy were involved. At the moment when you told the CIA to tell the FBI to stop period, as you put it. At that point, only five people had been arrested. Liddy was
2: not even under suspicion. G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt were the masterminds behind and supervisors of the Watergate break-in. They were also close to Nixon's inner circle. And when Nixon refused to fire the men after the Watergate scandal blew open, it was seen as evidence that the president had something to hide. And so you knew, in terms
0: of intent, and you knew, in terms of foreseeable consequence, uh, that the result would be that, in fact, criminals would be protected. Hunt and Liddy, who were criminally liable, would be protected. You knew about them. The whole statement says that uh, uh, we, we're going to hold him and says we don't want you to go any further on it. Get them to stop stop, they don't need to pursue it you said tell them don't go any further into this case period by definition by what you've said and by what the record shows that per se was a conspiracy to obstruct justice you already knew about Hunt and Liddy and had talked about both no, so that is obstruction
1: of justice not just a period. moment period uh, that's your conclusion it is uh, but now let's look at the facts uh, the facts is that as far this as back and Liddy forth was,
2: continued uh, for some time what I knew Eventually, Nixon argued that he didn't obstruct justice because, after all, the attempt failed. The CIA had refused to step in and stop the FBI's investigation. The fact is it didn't have any such effect whatever. Dad was more aggressive than normal over the course of the day. But it's he had reason to be. He knew Nixon Alfred was obfuscating, period, and he had the facts to also, prove it.
0: It's no defence to say that the plan failed, that the CIA didn't go along with it, refused to go along with it. I mean, if I try and rob a bank and fail, that's no defence. I still tried to rob a bank. I would say you still tried to obstruct justice and succeeded for that period. You use the term obstruction
1: of justice. Uh, you perhaps have not read the statute with regard to respect... Uh, 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 obstruction of justice, obstruction, well, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Of course, you probably have read it, but possibly you might have missed it because when I read it uh, many years ago, the statute doesn't require just an act. The statute has the specific provision one must corruptly impede a judicial... Well, you, a corrupt matter. endeavor is enough. A con... Co, all right. Was a conduct an endeavor. Corrupt intent, but it must be corrupt. And that gets to the point of motive. One must have a c- corrupt motive. Now, I did not have a corrupt motive. I was trying to
2: contain this thing politically. Uh, Nixon was clearly getting flustered by dad's couldn't questioning. Couldn't. And Dad knew Nixon's explanations were flimsy. Earlier that day, he'd carefully reviewed the legal texts explaining obstruction of justice.
0: The point is that motive can be helpful when intent is not clear. Your intent is absolutely clear. It's stated again. Stop this investigation here, period. The foreseeable, inevitable consequence, if you'd been successful, would have been that Hunt and Liddy would not have been brought to justice. How can that not be a conspiracy to obstruct justice? Wait a minute.
2: Stop. Thanks to people on Dad's research team, people like John Burt, James Reston and Bob Zelnick, he was armed with information that Nixon never expected.
0: But there's one uh, very clear, self-contained quote, and I read the whole of this conversation of February the 13th, which I don't think has ever been published. And there was one very clear quote in it that I thought was... It hasn't been published, you say? No, I think it's, it's available to anybody who consults the records, but, oh, uh, but uh, people don't consult all the I'm records just necessarily. If we'd seen it. The President says this on February the 13th. When I'm speaking about Watergate, this tremendous investigation rests unless one of the seven begins to talk. That's the problem. Now, in that remark, it seems to me... Someone running the cover-up couldn't have expressed it more clearly than that, could they?
1: What, what do we mean by one of the seven beginning to talk? I. How many times the seven
2: men Nixon referred to were people like Liddy and Hunt, who had either overseen or been a part of the initial Watergate break-in. When early cover-up plans failed, Nixon's team resorted to hush money payments to keep a number of them from talking to the FBI. And Dad was ready and armed with Nixon's own words to quote back to him regarding how to execute the hush money plan.
0: One, you could get a million dollars and you could get it in cash. I know where it could be gotten. Two, Your major guy to keep under control is Hunt. Five, get the million bucks. It would seem to me that would be worthwhile. Eight, we should buy the time on that as I... Eleven, the money can be provided. That could be done. See what I mean? Fourteen, you better damn well get that done, but fast. Sixteen, we have no choice, and so
2: on. By the time Dad had finished this exchange, Nixon was flabbergasted.
0: Now, reading as you've requested the thing in the whole context... Let me me just stop you right
1: there, right, right there. You're doing something here which I am not doing and I will not do throughout these broadcasts. You have every right to. Uh, you are reading there uh, out of context, uh, out of order, because I have.
2: With Nixon this, on I the defense, Dad changed tack, tack slightly, softening the accusation in an attempt no to draw him out. You know than Instead than of accusing him of a criminal act, and, uh, he tried to see well. if the president would acknowledge he could have, have done to more to stop tells one.
0: Tells me, to read in an open minded way, that. Uh, that the writing, not just between the lines, but on so many of the lines as I quoted, is very, very clear that you were in fact endorsing at least the short-term solution of paying this sum of money to buy time. That would be my reading of it. The other point to be said is, here's Dean talking about this hush money, talking about blackmail, and all of that. I would say that you endorsed or ratified it, but let's leave that on one side I didn't a endorse or ratify. it. Why you didn't you stop it?
1: Because at that point, I had nothing to, no knowledge of the fact that it was going to be paid. The point that I make is this. It's possible it's a mistake that I didn't stop it. The point that I make is that I did consider it. Uh, I considered it for reasons that I thought were very good ones. Uh, I would not consider it uh, for uh, the other reasons which would have been, in my view, bad ones."
2: But that Dad night, continued that night, pressing Nixon on why he, he failed, failed to stop his staff's illegal activities, like the obstruction down attempts down the by Haldeman and Ehrlichman, and, and, and the hush uh, money payments that, that John Dean to told down Nixon down about on March 21, 1973.
0: What I don't understand about March the 21st is that I still don't know why you didn't pick up the phone and tell the cops. I still don't know when you found about the things that Holderman and Ehrlichman had done that there is no evidence anywhere of a rebuke, but only of scenarios and excuses, etc. Nowhere do you say we must get this in- information direct to whoever it is—the head of the uh, Justice Department, criminal investigation, or whatever. And nowhere do you say to Holdeman and
1: Ehrlichman, "You're fired." Could I take my time now to to uh, to address that question? Hmm. Uh, I, I think it will be very uh, useful. You know what I what I was going through. Hmm. It wasn't a very easy time.
2: Over the following hour, Nixon talked at great lengths about the virtues of loyalty and the definition of a cover-up. And Dad sort of let him go at this point, before eventually Nixon talked himself into a corner. I did not have an immoral intent. It isn't immoral
1: to stand by men that you believe in, you are trying to save within the law. It is an immoral uh, during a campaign fight back uh, to keep a prejudiced press from cutting your guts out that's moral it's immoral not to fight and frankly you may disagree with this I think it's immoral to be disloyal to your friends I think it is very important to
0: be loyal to your friends but what you're saying is that sometimes your
1: loyalty went too far my loyalty went too far for a president's loyalty to go.
2: By spring of nineteen seventy three, Nixon knew everything Haldeman and Ehrlichman had done, but it still took him weeks to force these men, two of his closest confidants, to resign. For many, the delay would be damning.
1: I took Ehrlichman out on the porch at Aspen. That's the presidential cabinet camp, David, and it was springtime. The tulips had just come out. I never forget we looked out across, it was one of those gorgeous days when the you know, no clouds were on the mountain. And I was pretty emotionally wrought up. I could just hardly bring myself to tell Arlickman that he had to go. I said, you know, John, when I went to bed last night, I hoped, I almost prayed I wouldn't wake up this morning. Well, it's an emotional moment. I think there were tears in our eyes, both of us. He said, don't say that. But I did it. I cut off one arm, then cut off the other arm. Now, I can be faulted. I recognize it. Maybe I defended them too long. Maybe I tried to help them too much. I felt that they and their hearts felt they were not guilty. I felt they ought to have a chance at least to prove that they were not guilty. And I suppose you could sum it all up uh, the way one of your British Prime Ministers summed it up, Gladstone. when He said that the first requirement for a Prime Minister is to be a good butcher. Well, I think the great story as far as summary of Watergate is concerned, I, uh, I did some of the big things rather well. I screwed up terribly on what was a little thing and became a big thing. But I will have to admit, I wasn't a good butcher.
2: On the first day of the Watergate discussion, Dad had waged a prosecutorial battle, punching holes in Nixon's story, catching him in lies and calling out his bluffs. And it was clear when Nixon arrived the next day that it had worn him down.
0: On the second day of Watergate, after the first day which had not gone well for him, suddenly this impeccably timed man, on the second day of Watergate, arrived 17 minutes late with the haunted look that he hadn't had in the rest of the interviews, but that he had had at the time of the original Watergate. And it was an extraordinary sight and everybody commented on it, everybody noticed
2: it. This would be a different Richard Nixon, no longer the pugnacious politician On this day, the prosecutorial battle would become something of a therapy session.
0: Now you're telling us your innermost feelings at that time. And I've indicated some of my doubts and I've got others about the speed with which the truth came out.
1: I agree, I did not act fast enough among the many mistakes I made in this period and earlier too was that I didn't act as fast as I should. I made all those mistakes. And as far as these two men are concerned, I realize that after hearing what I did about them on March the 21st, that probably I should have uh, called and said, look, here are these two people. Uh, Dean has made these charges. Uh, I want you to haul them down to the dock, fingerprint them, and throw them into the can and uh, put them before the grand jury or or whatever. But I'm just not made that way, Uh, and I'll admit that. I'm a pretty tough guy. I'm a pretty tough guy. In fact, perhaps I'm criticized a bit, bit more for being tough than for being soft. But when it comes to people, you know, I feel for them. When it comes to people, I feel for them. And when you let your feelings, your heart, get in the way of your head, when you're president, that's when you make mistakes. And that's what I did.
0: And that word, I think, is a trigger word with people. Would you, would you now say to clear the air that, for whatever motives, that between the period March the 21st and April the 30th, you were indeed misled, maybe? Um, waylaid by emotion, or whatever you were waylaid by, that actually in that period you were part of a cover-up? No.
1: I think your categorizing it as a cover-up, others categorizing it as a cover-up, is certainly justified based on the facts that you have laid out. As far as my motive was concerned, and my intent was concerned, I only know what that was. And as far as that was concerned, sure, I didn't want them to get caught up in a web, which would find them destroyed because of criminal liability. I wanted to save
2: them within the law. Dad's leading Nixon to a place where he might finally be honest. But then, unbelievably, the cameraman signals to Dad that the tape is about to run out.
0: We'll take a break there. We've got to uh, change tapes. Can I make a request here? Because, um, Mr. President, which would you prefer? We have to change tapes, which means a seven-minute break uh, and reorganize things. And we we would have to ask our friends who I'm sure would agree to take a late lunch break if we carry on in seven minutes or we could take a lunch break now and carry on in half an hour which would you prefer mr.
1: Preston I kind of prefer if, if these you know these guys all look very well, well fed and all the rest they are. I'd prefer to go on get when it we're when we're right. on it all right so let's... I want to I want you to Sorry, but I want to say something about Mitchell do Yes please switch off tape please uh,
0: uh, um,
1: which is something that has never been said and I uh, right, it's so time we'll... it's time somebody do it.
2: The tape drops. I don't know what President Nixon said about his attorney general and fellow Watergate conspirator John Mitchell. I never had the chance to ask Dad about it. The tapes get changed, and what follows is perhaps the most famous TV interview moment of all time. We pick up seven or so minutes later with Dad and Nixon in some small talk. Arthur was the youngest, and then my my very
1: youngest brother Eddie was not born until my mother was 43.
0: How many? Are, how many are still alive? Three. 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 And then it begins to come back to where we were just now. Mr. President, because this is a difficult program for you, and a a difficult program for me. You were talking about your emotions as you had to bid farewell to uh, Haldeman and Ehrlichman, and talking about the mistakes that you made, and so on, in doing that. you've talked about the mistakes Um, we're at an extraordinary moment in a way would you do what the American people yearn to hear not because they yearn to hear it but just to tell all level and so on would you go further than mistakes, that you've explained how you got caught up in this thing, you can ex- you've explained your motives, I don't want to quibble about any of that, but just coming to the sheer substance, would you go further than mistakes, the word that seems n- not enough for people to understand.
2: What
1: word would you express?
2: In this moment, Nixon gestures to Dad and gives a wry smile, as if he's turned the tables. But Dad is pensive. He starts twisting his fingers and presses his hand to his cheek in thought.
0: My goodness, that's
2: a I uh, would say no,
0: no, I let me say, let me say. No, no, me, I, no I, let I, me say. Well no, no 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 no, no let me try and say. Because I've qualified the mistakes yes. I yes. tried to say, let they, me say how bad they were. Well let me tell let me
2: say. I was Dad throws his clipboard down. He leans in, close to Nixon. I'm trying to forget Let
1: the me, difference between yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a mistake and a cry. Right. Yeah.
2: By this point in Dad's career, he's been practicing the art of the interview, the art of asking questions for 15 years. For the previous 20 hours of film time, he'd been asking all the questions. But this would be the greatest moment in his career. And the great irony is, it would come not from asking a question, but from answering one.
0: Yeah, let me, I, let me say that my, my concern is now not to, which is why I chucked the clipboard away, is not to uh, be legalistic mm-hmm. or That's anything good. about, about mm-hmm. obstructions of justice and so on, and things we've discussed so far, and so on. I think that there are three things, since you asked me mm-hmm. that, that, that heart-stopping question i would like to hear you say i think the american people would like to hear you say one is there was probably more than mistakes there was wrongdoing whether it was a crime or not yes it may have been a crime too secondly i did and I'm saying this without questioning the motives, right? I did abuse the power I had as president or uh, not fulfill the totality of the oath of office. That, that's the second thing. And thirdly, I put the American people through two years of needless agony, and I apologize for that.
2: In this moment, Nixon looks up and closes his eyes. There's a glimmer of a tear even his face changes from a grin to something that just might resemble remorse. And I say that, you've explained your motives,
0: I think those are the categories. And I know how difficult it is for anyone, and most of all you, but I think that people need to hear it, and I think unless you say it, you're gonna be haunted for the rest of your life.
2: What followed over the next 30 minutes from Richard Nixon was an outpouring of emotion. What one might even call a cascade of candor.
1: I well remember uh, that when I let Holloman and Ehrlichman know that they were to resign, that I had Ray Price bring in the final draft of the speech that I was to make the next night. And I said to him, Ray. I said, if you think I ought to resign, I said, put that in too, because I feel responsible. Well, he didn't put it in. And uh, I must say that at that time, I seriously considered whether I shouldn't resign. The question as to what happened between April 30th and the time I resigned is, uh, I think also got to be put into context. It was not uh, a good time for the country, Well, I made uh, mistakes, horrendous ones. Uh, Ones that uh, were not worthy of a president. Uh, Ones that did not meet the standards of excellence that I had always dreamed of as a young boy. I never thought I was gonna be president when I was a youngster, incidentally. I thought if I could maybe be justice of the peace, I'd be be doing pretty well. But, In this respect, I didn't do it. And I think some of my mistakes that uh, I regret most deeply came with the statements that I made afterwards. Uh, Some of those statements uh, were misleading. I said things that were not true. You got caught up in something and then it snowballed. It snowballed. But the point was that uh, as time went on, the attacks continued, Uh, my credibility began to go down, and uh, as it went down at home, it went down abroad. And frankly, my resignation decision, uh, a great deal of that decision, uh, had to do with my total belief that the country in this period has to have a full-time president. Uh, By the time I resigned, I was crippled. I knew that in terms of being able to govern, uh, in being able to be the kind of a president and the kind of a leader that America and the free world and that peace in the world needed, I could no longer do it. And it was my fault. I'm not blaming anybody else. No, I'm not asking... I'm simply saying to you that as far as I'm concerned, I not only regret it, When I resigned, people didn't think it was enough to admit mistakes, fine. If they want me to get down and grovel on the floor, no, never. Uh, Because I don't believe I should. I brought myself down. I gave them a sword, and they stuck it in, and they twisted it with relish. And I guess if I had been in their position, I'd have done the same thing.
2: And then the moment finally came. The apology my dad and America was waiting for.
1: I let down my friends. I let down the country. I let down our system of government and the dreams of all those young people that ought to get into government but will think it's all too corrupt and the rest. I let down an opportunity that I would have had for two and a half more years to proceed on the great projects and programs for building a lasting peace, which has been my dream, as you know from our first interview in 1968, before I had any thought I might even win that year. I didn't tell you I didn't think I might win, but I wasn't sure. Yep. I, I, I let the American people down. And I have to carry that burden with me for the rest of my life. My political life is over. I will never yet and never again have an opportunity to serve in any official position. Maybe I can give a little advice from time to time. And so I can only say that in answer to your question, that while technically I did not commit a crime, an impeachable offense, these are legalisms. As far as the handling of this matter was concerned, it was so botched up. I made so many bad judgments the worst ones mistakes of the heart rather than the head as I pointed out but let me say a man in that top judge top job he's got to have a heart but his head must always rule his heart I think you've said it all really the uh,
0: you're saying if I understand it right Mr. President you said it's a burden that I'm going to carry with you for the rest of your life. I think, I think it may be a little, a little lighter after what you've said. Um, I doubt it. Why don't I let you end this program by just gazing into that camera there and saying whatever you want to about Watergate to the American
1: people? My greatest regret about Watergate is that I butched up an incident. I fouled up in the area where I'm supposed to be a master. The area of just politics. I'm not proud of what I did. It tended to reduce respect for the office of the presidency. I know a lot of people have felt that when I mentioned that I was trying to protect the office of the presidency and so forth and so on, that that was just protecting myself. Well, think what you like. But it's terribly important that whoever's in that office have the respect of his fellow men. They don't have to be for him. They don't have to vote for him. But the president must be respected. The office deserves respect. And anybody who is in that office who does something which reduces respect for the offices makes America a little weaker a little less admirable and most important less able to be the leader of the free world which it must be if freedom is to survive. Mr. President this is uh
0: this has been more been tough for you (laughs) well no but I was going to say that uh, I feel we've covered a lot of ground been through a life almost rather than an interview and we thank you have a
1: good lunch well let's get out of here
2: The Nixon interviews were broadcast in 1977. Dad met Mum and started a family a few years later. I was born in 1985. My brothers and I knew about Dad's Nixon interviews as kids and were somewhat aware of their significance in our teens. But it wasn't until Frost Nixon, Peter Morgan's brilliant play and then he and Ron Howard's excellent movie, that we truly grasped what an epic and important achievement those interviews were. I remember the three-year period of movie premieres, curtain calls and awards nights that surrounded it all. My brothers and I just looked at Dad and thought, you're so damn cool. And I think he sensed that. It all gave him the most wonderful boost right at the end of his life. Dad himself became the subject of many interviews around that time, and he often reflected on the contribution the Nixon interviews made to his adopted country. He was even asked the same question he had posed to so many. How would he like to be remembered?
0: Something about uh, that he didn't waste time and talents and so on. And that, of course, the phrase from Robert Kennedy about making a contribution, which is that one hopes one has done. And I think in terms of our three boys, that uh, men, um, if people say that I was half as good a father as my father, the Reverend W.J. and Frost was to me, i will be very happy.
2: Believe it or not, Dad was an even better father than he was a broadcaster. And my brother George and I dedicate this series in loving memory to Dad, who died in 2013, and our older brother Miles, who died two years later. We miss you both immeasurably. And Mum, We hope you've enjoyed it. These have been The Frost Tapes. Thanks so much for listening. The Frost Tapes is a production of iHeart Radio and Paradine Productions. Executive producers of The Frost Tapes are Wilfred and George Frost. Executive producer for iHeart Media is Mangesh Hatikada. Produced by Ryan Murdoch and Nikki Itor. Written by Lucas Riley, Ryan Murdoch, and Wilfred Frost. Directed and edited by Ryan Murdoch with help from Abu Zafar, Michelle Lands, and Josh Fisher. Fact-checked by Austin Thompson. Special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Years Productions, and Morgan Lavoy of iHeartMedia. For this episode, special thanks also to Ryan Pettigrew and Pamela Eisenberg at the Nixon Presidential Library and Museum.